Welcome to the Envision Together, Going to Our Next Level of Best podcast. I'm your host, Pamela Mishana. Join me on this bi-weekly journey of empowerment, where you'll hear hands-on advice from lifestyle experts, educators, authors, spiritual leaders, and many more who will share tips on how to triumph personally, professionally, and spiritually. We explore timely topics such as overcoming anxiety and fear, educating the reluctant student, cultivating lasting relationships, and strengthening our faith. My hope is that the insights offered on the show will help us envision ourselves using our unique gifts and talents on greater levels for greater purposes. So welcome everyone to this episode of Envision Together, going to our next level of best. I am very happy to introduce to all of you, John Giordano, (laughs) who's going to now tell us more about himself. Okay. So I'm a recovering addict. I'm coming up on 38 years of recovering. I didn't even think it would have 38 minutes, but you know, here we are today. (laughs) My journey was Quite a journey looking back. Matter of fact, I'm, uh, we're just discussing it off air. I wrote this book, The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. And I'm going to give you some of the stuff that's in the book to show you no matter what happens to you in life, you can always be successful and come out of it. I'm an inner city street kid. Or I was growing up in the South Bronx uh, in one of the best neighborhoods. <laughs> okay. It was considered in Time Magazine as the worst neighborhood in the United States. It was where Fort Apache was. That's the police station that they used to call Fort Apache years ago. You know, I come from a a family where my father was a heroin dealer. My family was like a mafia-type family. My uncle was a hitman. My grandfather ran numbers, they call it, you know, and did collection work. And, you know, people say, well, how come you don't look at the Sopranos? It's a great television show. I said, I lived it. So one of the messages I want to get out before I even go into my story is I would like to say this. The kid from the South Bronx who never gave up. Here's my roadmap for positive change. There is one thing in this world, one special lesson, one constant that has guided me through the turbulent waters of life. This infinite rule, which most people know but ignore, or simply do not follow their life lessons. That is, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, the obstacles, the people that get in our way, or things that slow us down, follow this one simple rule. Never give up on your dreams. Never let go of your passions. And especially, never give up on yourself or a God of your understanding. Here's a homeless guy. I was homeless when I got to recovery. And um, my story goes to where I turned $300 into $45 million. So we're going to talk about all that, where I came from, how I got there, and what happened along the way. Mm-hmm. I wrote the book to help people that feel hopeless, mm-hmm. that feel like, well, I don't have any education. My family is horrible. I'm a drug addict. I've been in and out of treatment centers. I got molested. Well, all those things happened to me. Part of your start was your father got arrested when you're eight. And then right. you were sexually attacked when you're eight and a half. 
I was sexually abused by the kids in the neighborhood when I was eight and a half. You know, it's really interesting because I, you know, being a therapist, I also work with trauma and I work with people that have been sexually abused. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about when you get sexually abused, for a moment, maybe it's a tenth of a second, it may feel good. I know that may sound a little strange, and then all of a sudden you realize, what do you mean? Oh, this is not supposed to happen. It's my fault. Or, right. I, I, you know, what's wrong with me? And, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes on. Well, it's normal. I just want to let you know. Whenever you're touching something that's sensitive, for a flash like that, it may feel good. But just for that split moment in time. I thank you for sharing that because I would imagine there's a lot of people who've been sexually abused and they harbor guilt when they were actually a victim and they don't understand the difference between your body reacting to something and then the way you mentally and emotionally may react totally differently to that same event. And so people can live a lifetime of feeling there's something wrong with me. Why did I find pleasure from it on some level? And I agree with you, like you said, it may have been just a split second, but that is enough to make people harbor guilt, think they had something to do with it, when in essence they were attacked. I actually said I got the devil inside. I was raised a Catholic, so I got the devil inside of me. Hmm. And I went to the priest and I said, Father, would you get this devil out of me? So, okay, John, five Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers, and you'll be fine. That didn't work very well. Mm-hmm. You know, so I call myself now a recovering Catholic. So at eight and a half, I got molested by some boys in the neighborhood. And then at nine, I got molested again by my babysitter. He was 14 and I was nine. That also left me not knowing how to feel about women, how to feel about myself. It was exciting, but yet it was frightening. Mm-hmm. I was afraid somebody was going to find out. It really affected me throughout most of my life. You know, yeah. I have sexual abuse in my background, too. So I can relate to all of that confusion that you're expressing. And it does affect you, especially if you are late in life getting help or therapy, sorting it out. Most people who've had these things happen to them in their youth go through it without the aid of someone to talk to or someone who understands or can help them get through it. A lot of people are ashamed to even tell anyone that it happened to them. I appreciate you being candid. I think it's more common for women to admit it or share it. You hear it less frequently from males. So I think you're doing a lot of good by sharing and keeping it real too around it. So you know, I don't have any more shame in my game. <laughs> I get you. <laughs> You're like, I've lived too long and I have uh, enough listen, experience. Man. I'm 75. <laughs> That's no jive. I know you know. Like, I've learned to just be me That's by it. this time. Huh? <laughs> you know, life happens, life shows up. And that's just the way it is. So as my life goes on, you know, I was in gangs when I was a kid. I was an inner city kid. I was in a black gang. I was in a Hispanic gang, an Irish gang. And I was in all kinds of gangs. You know, I was looking for people to just accept me for who I was, even though I didn't know who I was anyway. What happened eventually, I, I went to a karate school. Actually, I thought it was a tough guy. Well, let me digress a little bit. Back early on, when I was nine, when I was 10, okay, that's when I went into the gangs. And then when I was 12, 
I started to have an eating disorder because I was overweight. And kids used to call me Fat John. I mean, I had everything known to man happen to me. So, <laughs> all right. So I stopped eating, really. Literally almost stopped eating. And I became anemic. And my mother, being an Italian mother, freaked out. And she says, no, it's impossible. I feed him. How can that be? How can it be? I can only imagine. Thankfully, I got on a different path. And I started eating again regularly. Also, thinking that I was gay. I wasn't sure if I was gay. I was straight because of all the sexual experiences I had there. I just always was after had three, four, two, three girls always around me. Just to show my manhood. Mm-hmm. And always was fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, the show was a tough guy. And you were uh, really acting up from a lot of pain points. A lot of the trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I didn't know at the time. I didn't, you know, to me it was normal. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is, you know. What wound up happening is I was 14 and a half. And I was driving with a friend of mine who had a car. I thought it was a real tough guy. I said, well, you know what? There's a karate school there. Let me see if I can beat the karate instructor up. I don't suggest that, by the way. It's very stupid. <laughs> okay. Back then, it was really karate. It was really martial arts. It's not that it really wasn't too much about a sport. So anyway, uh, I went up to the school, and the class was just about over, but I had to get home. Otherwise, my father would hit me with a belt. I went home. I told my father I wanted to go into the class. He says, okay. My mother said, no. He said, no, let him go. It's good for him. And my mother finally agreed, and they signed the paper. Because back then, you had to be 15 in order to get into the class. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the karate class, and I'm sitting around, and they're showing how to fall. And roll. it was a jiu-jitsu class, not a karate class. This teacher, small little guy with a round face and a little belly, <laughs> all right, is going to teach us how to block a punch. He says, all right, I need a volunteer. So I volunteer right away. So as he was talking, I tried to sneak punch him. But oh, that's another bad idea, by the way. All I know is this. I went from point A to point B, meaning I was on the ground. I had a foot in my throat, and I had a big round face looking down at me, smiling. I fell in love with the martial arts. And I've been doing that now for over 60 years. But it took me out of the street and gave me a focus, gave me discipline, and it did a lot for me. As time went on, uh, of course, I met a girl. You know, life changed. I was in Florida. I was from New York. I went to Florida. I got introduced to drugs. But, you know, I started doing drugs at an early age. I was 20. Mm-hmm. Not that early, by the way, late age, mm-hmm. uh, compared to the kids today, absolutely. You know, because they're doing it at 12 and 10. I did that. I did acid. I did peyote. I did all the psychedelic mushrooms and all the stuff, you know, that you do for psychedelics. Then I started smoking pot, and then I went into... Did that door open to you because of the relationship? The rest of the doors open because of the relationship. The reason why I started doing acid was I heard all about it. My students kept on coming to my karate school stoned. I used to torture them. I used to make them do push-ups until they threw up. And then they would come back the next day, do the same thing. They said, well, you never tried it. You don't know. So one day, this guy walked into my apartment. He was a drug dealer. And he had this vial of clear liquid. So I said, what is that? He said, "That's oh, that's LSD. I said, oh, yeah, let me see. I opened the vial. I drank the whole thing. Well, I didn't know it was for five people. Oh. I went on a trip for four days, day and night. I couldn't wait till it ended, but I really liked it. Because I felt my mind expanding, you know, all the other stuff. And then I kept doing that. And then I graduated after I met the girl. And we went to all these different drugs. 
I, I was teaching the police department, martial arts, special forces, doing all of that stuff. I was helping kids uh, in the inner city not to get arrested, not to get in trouble. But then I was doing drugs on my own. So I, lived a, I lived a double life. I see. Mm-hmm. I did good on one side and not so good on the other side. So what wind up happening, I wind up doing something I didn't think I would do. At 20, I got married. My uncle threw the wedding. And what happened was, you know, my, my family was like a mafia family, like I said earlier. Mm-hmm. And my new in-laws were Jewish. They didn't want her to marry a, a, a guy that wasn't Jewish, but they liked my family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See what they knew. So the father was a lawyer. The mother was the head of the PTA. So on one side of the room, they had lawyers and doctors and all kinds of stuff with guys with pens in their pocket. On the other side of the room, they had all these racket guys with guns in their pocket. So anyway, the caterer insulted my uncle in the wedding. The next morning, he killed him. And then we had to run back home, okay, because the police were coming to my grandmother's house to arrest him. Wow. And I couldn't prove he did it. And I don't know if he did it, but I know he did it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll put it that way. <laughs> I know what you're saying. So anyway, they arrested him. And what happened with him was he started acting crazy. He put him in a straitjacket. And then we're going to take him down a flight of stairs. And he dove down head first, down the flight of stairs with a straitjacket on. Mm-hmm. So they put him in a mental institution. Two years later, he got out, went to trial. They cleared him. They couldn't prove it. So it's double jeopardy. So I could talk about it because they can't arrest them for the same thing. Then I started selling drugs. Then I started doing collection work for the smugglers. Then I used to teach one of the cartels in Colombia. I used to teach their bodyguards, martial arts. Mm. I did a lot of crazy stuff. On the flip side, I would do karate tournaments. I became a United States karate champion, five-time national karate champion. I lived a totally double life. At I one also, point, you became a chaplain. So was chaplain anywhere in this window? No, no, that was after I got clean. So what happened was one, one of the days, they hired me to be a marketing guy for Flea Market USA. It was a flea market in Overtown, Liberty City. And that was right after the riot. So nobody wanted to go into the city anymore. They into the community all afraid. I used to teach in the community. So most of my students were black. Mm-hmm. To me, I didn't see color. All I, I was a New York kid. You know, I just saw people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the other people, they were afraid to come into the city. So what I did was I told the owners that I have an idea, okay? And I says, why don't we have a concert? And they said, well, we want the biggest grand opening you get. So I got James Brown because my friend knew James. James also did Coke. So that was another story. James came, but before that, what I did was I sent a letter to the White House. I I, uh, invited President Reagan to come to the opening of the flea market. I can remember I was still using that, not where I got crazy, but crazy enough on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I didn't use it all. So what happened, everybody laughed at me. President Reagan's going to come to Liberty City, okay? And I says, well, you don't know. So the theme of the, the flea market was... We were revitalizing Liberty City and Overtown. I went with all the churches. I was singing with the deacons and all the black churches and, you know, and the pastors and everything like that. And I I contacted the SBA People's Small Business Association, 
teaching people how to how to run a business, how to buy wholesale, and do all of those things. Two weeks later, I get a letter back from the White House hmm. stating that the president sorry couldn't come because of scheduling, but he's sending a representative. So who does he send? Carrie Meeks. Now Carrie Meeks will wind up later on being a senator Meeks. She was the state representative at the time. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they check you out before anybody's going to meet with you. And they checked all around and everything and saw what I was doing to help the community. So she went to the Martha Luther King Foundation. And together, they presented me with the Martha Luther King Award on stage in front of 60,000 people. Wow. A lot of people said, come on, John, there's 60,000. I said, tell you what. I got the pictures. Here, you tell me how many people were there. Mm-hmm. Because as far as your eye can see in every direction, because we did it in a parking lot. Mm-hmm. That was a huge parking lot. And it was everywhere. So that's one of the things I did even while I was using. I was thinking you had cleaned yourself up. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I did a lot. Of, I did plays in the theater, performing arts. I did a lot of stuff mm-hmm. while I was using. You know, just because an addict uses doesn't mean there's different levels of addicts. Some get completely incapacitated, can't do anything. And others just like... Um, There's functional addicts. They're functioning people. I was one of those for a while. But towards the end, no. Now, I was uh, running a car wash for a friend of mine. And I had 35 guys working for us, washing cars and maxing them. And they were all on the jail release program. Uh, you know, guys from jail, from the hood. You know how they are. You know, they'll kill you for 50 cents. And I used to carry a gun with me at the time. I was really doing a lot of drugs at the time. I was putting guns in their mouth, slapping them, you know, straightening them out when they tried to jump up in my face. It was a crazy time. So my partner said, you have to go to treatment, man. So you're going to kill someone and somebody's going to kill you. So I said, okay. So I says, I don't really want to go. I don't have a problem. They have a problem. If I don't keep them in line, you know what they're going to do? Say, no, 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 no. So my mother, my brother, my father, everybody uh, came in and did an intervention on me. And I say, so I'm looking at them. Who's doing an intervention on them? Okay, my brother was dealing drugs. My friends were all doing the same thing. My mother said she'd never talk to me again. So I said, okay, I'll go to treatment. So I had some coke in my sock. I went into the bathroom. Addicts always do the last hurrah. I got high and I went upstairs. And what happened was I went up there and, you know, I used to teach a lot of the, the doctors, kids and the nurses. I don't want anybody to know who I was, which was like, you know, like an ostrich hiding his head and his ass is sticking in the air. Well, that was me. All right. So I put on dark sunglasses thinking nobody's going to recognize me. Like stupid. It doesn't even make sense. But the guy came up from the business office was one of my students that I went out the window. Then I was sitting in a group and he asked me to share I said, look, if I share, I'm going to have to kill you. So everybody laughed, and I laughed, and I said, I wouldn't even get high with you people. I was really nasty. I was always wanting to leave. I had My bags were always packed. I was always at the elevator with my bags, and then they would grab me, bring me uh, into the office and talk with me, and I used to stay. But what happened, I had a spiritual awakening and treatment. It was Christmas time that I was in, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go home for Christmas Eve. And they wouldn't let me. And I got pissed. I don't need this get angry. I got rageful. I don't know about you or anybody else, but it didn't go away right away. Sometimes it took hours. Sometimes it even took days. 
So I punched the door in my room. I walked into the room and I remember my therapist telling me, hey, John, you ever pray on your knees? I said, you got to be kidding me. I got calluses on my knees. I'm a recovering Catholic. Are you nuts? So he says, no, no. How about for humility? I said, oh, yeah. What do you mean? God doesn't listen to me? Uh, how about if I'm in a closet? Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. You know, I was really a jerk. So anyway, I was in so much pain. I started to clear up and realize how I hurt my kids and my family and you know all of this kind of stuff. And I went to put my knee down to pray. And I still get a little bit about that. I, 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 this is hard to believe. I couldn't get my knee down. I know that sounds ridiculous. Mm-hmm. All right. I finally pushed my knee down. And then I had to push my other knee down. And I said, whoever's out there, whatever you are, God, whatever you want me to do, I will do. Mm-hmm. Okay? Just get rid of this inside me because I'm really hurting. Mm-hmm. And it went away like it never, ever was there. Everything, pain, anger, gone. Wow. Well, I'm real sick, so I try to get it back. Mm-hmm. Then come back. So that's what I consider my spiritual awakening, mm-hmm. my first one. Mm -hmm. My second one was, while I was in treatment, they wanted me to, I had to go to what is known as exiting. That's where the nurses, the doctors, and the counselors all get you in a room, and they tell you we need long-term treatment, a couple extra weeks, whatever. So they all started saying, oh, John's doing much better. He's sharing in group, and he's doing really good. And And the nurse said that, the counselor, the doctor. But one of the doctors says, He's full of crap. You can take the street kid out of the street, but you can't take the, you know, the street out of the kid. So I jumped up, called her all kinds of names, all right, and told everybody, you know, I can kill all of you, and you wouldn't be able to get out of this room. So one of the doctors looked at me and said, John, all we want to do is help you. I busted up crying. I ran out of the room. I must have been about an inch tall running out of that room. Mm-hmm. And that was my turning point. Was it kind of like you were having this explosion, but then someone still looked past that and just said, you know what? We just want to help you. Is that what kind of caused you to break in that moment? Yeah, because, you know, you expect somebody to say something other than that. To match the display. No, to match the, what I'm, the stupidity I had. Mm-hmm. And it just came from totally left field and sincere. And that was it. So I got out of treatment. And the minute I got out, my wife was still using. So she hands me a, a vial of Coke. And he says, why don't you just do one hit? You've been gone for six weeks. And I looked at it. I said, are you nuts? Okay, mm-hmm. get it. So I wind up, they said, don't make any changes. So I did. And I went to therapy. She kept using. I couldn't stay in the house anymore with that. We got divorced. She had everything. I wind up living homeless. A friend of mine loaned me a room in a hotel that he owned. It was um, an adult congregate living facility for older people. I had two beds. I had a little warmer. I had a bicycle somebody loaned me. No money because I, I wasn't selling drugs anymore. I wasn't doing collection work. I was teaching karate, making a few dollars for food. And that was it. How did that lead to chaplain, though? You got a whole story on it. I mean, I'm going to do it real quick. I quit school in the ninth grade. When I got in recovery, I went back to school. I got my GED. I went to college. I got my, my certifications, all my stuff. All right. 
I, I wind up meeting this girl and we wind up going to church a lot and for about a couple of years and we went to school for um, being a pastor and or a priest actually in this particular thing. It was a church of Mechesildek. He was a governor of, of Bethlehem and they thought he was the messiah at one time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they asked if I wanted to be a priest and I said, okay. <laughs> so they gave me a test. I They anointed me as a priest and I had this designation on my wall in my office at the time. Now I'm a counselor already. I have a treatment center that I put together. One of my students that came in who was a a rabbi, who was the head of the chaplaincy program, looked at my designation on my wall and says, is that real? I said, I don't know. I think it is. And they checked me out. They gave me a whole bunch of things to fill out. And it was, and I became the chaplain of North Miami Police Department. So that's that. And then I, I started my treatment center with $300. I had no money and it grew and I had a partner, my other partner, and he was good at the internet. My other partner was good at business. I designed the whole program. You had a particular interest in helping communities of color. Where did that stem from? Well, I taught karate in the community. I was the only white dude in the community in 1965. I'll give you a little quick thing. Because I'm from New York, so color didn't matter. You know, everybody's mixed. I would walk into this YMCA there, that YMCA, uh, Carver YMCA, yeah. And I walked in the front door. I have long hair, mustache, no shoes on, and a karate uniform in the black community in 1965. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you something. Everybody was shocked, right? I walked in the pool hall. Everybody stopped playing pool. I walked in the weight room. They all stopped doing weights. The karate school was in the back. My student, my black belt, was uh, special forces, and also he used to be a gang leader in the community, so everybody knew him, and they were afraid of him. I go on the mat, and one of the big dudes come out of the weight room. His arms were bigger than my leg. He said, hey, white boy, you think you can kick my ass? I said, yeah. So he says, oh, yeah? I said, yeah, get on the mat. He got on the mat. He tried to sneak punch me. I sidestepped him, round kicked him in the solar plexus, knocked him to the ground. He couldn't breathe. My student came in and says, oh, I see you met my teacher. Most of my black belts are black. So that's how I got into the black community. We helped a lot of kids. Some of them died. Some of them went to jail. Some of them became police officers, lawyers, doctors. You know, mixed bag. But that experience kind of opened you up or led you to want to do more. Well, my son almost died from this disease. And so did my wife. And I don't want to go to any more funerals. I'm tired. Okay. The so, disease uh, of I, being addicted, you mean? No, no. Tired of watching people die that have addiction. No, I'm saying you said they died from this disease. You mean the disease of addiction, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. You have to read the whole book because there's a bunch of companies involved, a bunch of different things. And I started it with $300. We did all alternative medicine. See, because depression... And anxiety goes hand in hand with addiction. Mm -hmm. But most people don't realize it's not just psychological, it's medical. Mm -hmm. If you have a low thyroid, you're going to have depression and anxiety. You have leaky gut syndrome or H. pylori infection, you can have depression and anxiety. At one point, companies and even researchers start paying attention to the work you were doing. Right. Well, I'm in 77 medical and scientific peer-reviewed journals. I work with 20 to 25 universities. I'm on a science team. 
Uh, I'm also on the editorial board of the Science Journal. I lectured to about over 100 countries. What's amazing is you started this company with $300 and then you sold it for how many millions? $45 million. $45 million. Now, If you would have told me that early on, I would have probably punched you in the face. <laughs> you're making fun of me. Because you wouldn't believe that your life would have went from where it started. I really only have a GED. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have certifications, but I don't have any licenses, which really for me doesn't mean anything. It's what you know, you know, not the paper. Yes. Yeah, you know, there's lots of intelligent people who don't necessarily have a degree. And then there's people with de- with degrees who may not be all that intelligent, actually. So, <laughs> so that's the funny thing about it all. So now you've written this book and you're sharing the book and there's a lot of buzz around the book as well. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Captain Sandy from Below Deck, the television show, she's a star of the show, one of the stars. She got interested in my work, read my book, and wants to make a movie out of it. That's great. So when, when you hear the rest of the, the stories in the book, it's like uh, like a soprano movie. Only trouble is it has a pretty good ending. Yeah. Or beginning, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I'm still going. Well, you know what? I am just so thankful that you came onto the show to share your story and the way you candidly uh, shared it and you walked a step from step where you started in life, the hardships you faced, the street life, even having a heart to help others, even while you're still kind of entangled with the street life yourself. And now you're at the point where you're clean, you're free, and you're still trying to do good for people. And you've wrapped a lot of this in the book. And I really hope that it does become a movie soon. 38 years in recovery. Crazy. And I never relapsed after treatment. (laughs) How does that happen? I have no idea. I just put one foot in front of the other. I hated the meetings. I hated the groups. I hated everything, but I kept going. Yeah. I don't know why. I just kept going. So let me ask you this, because I always ask all of my guests the same final question. If people forget everything you said in this conversation, what's the one thing you really want them to hold on to and never forget? Never give up on yourself, your dreams, your passions, and never give up, most of all, on yourself and the God of your understanding. So the gym you're leaving is never give up on yourself. Thank you. Is there anything you want to share about how people can get in touch with you? I am going to put things in the show notes, but is there anything you want to share verbally about how people can get in touch? Yeah, they can go to my website. Uh, My phone number is there. Everything's there. And I'm still doing God's work. Money doesn't make a difference to me. It makes a difference. It makes life easier, of course. You know, but that has its trials and tribulations also. So it's John, the initial J, Giordano.com. You'll see television shows. You'll see some of the research papers. You'll see my number. You'll see some of the books that I wrote. I, I didn't only write one book. I wrote three books and one I co-authored with a bunch of scientists. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, John, for being on my show today and adding value to my audience. I appreciate you as a person, your story, your journey, and how you've turned it all around. 
And thanks for sharing words of wisdom that'll help people go to their next level best. Thank you for having me on. I always like doing God's work. Thank you. Well, friends, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Envision Together Going to Our Next Level of Best podcast. I hope today's topic inspired you to envision a brighter future getting to your next level of best and to urge others to reach theirs as well. If you are encouraged by today's episode, subscribe and share it with your family and friends. Also, please write a review. It will help me to reach a wider audience with a message of hope and inspiration. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and share your thoughts about today's episode. Until next time, envision the future you want to see.